Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Revisiting Genesis episode 2. The Garden of Eden. Once upon a long, long time ago, God created man and woman and placed them in his magical garden. And he had but one command for them. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. And man and woman tended to the garden and ran around it naked and naive. And then came the most naked and cunning of the animals of the garden, the snake. The snake approached the woman the God Yahweh had created, and then he told her something very important. The truth. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will not kill them, but instead it would make them able to know right from wrong. Ironically, it was God's command and God's lie that tempted woman to try from this magnificent forbidden tree. And then she gave some to man, and they both ate from it. And so the God Yahweh banishes his children from his garden and protects the road to the tree of life with powerful magical spells. They are banished from their home, and they have to find somewhere else to live. Which is what actually happened to the writer of this story and to the community he was part of. The writer and his community were forced to leave their Garden of Eden and live elsewhere. And the way they depicted their God Yahweh in the story of Garden of Eden was that of a judge, a God judge. He notices a crime, he interrogates the suspects, he gives a verdict, and he hands out the appropriate punishment, all according to due process. A God judge. What kind of people would view their God as a judge? Let's dive in. to thank Costas, Rick, and Caleb for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. Welcome Costas, Rick, and Caleb. Hi everybody, this is Gil. I want to thank you for listening. This is the second episode of our Revisiting Genesis series. And our story for today, The Garden of Eden, is the second part of the story we went over in the previous episode, the creation of the world and the Garden of Eden. And our story for today picks up right after that in Genesis chapter 3. These two stories are part one and part two of the same story, and they complete and complement each other. There is a lot of setup in the creation story, and in this one comes the payoff. Here are some good examples. 
what began with man not being there to work the land, concludes with man not being there anymore to work the garden that grew on that land. The creation story ends with man and woman naked and naive. The Garden of Eden story starts with a snake being naked and cunning. And the nakedness comes full circle at the end when the first thing that man and woman do after eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is end their nakedness. They are no longer naked. And so no longer naive. While the snake was naked and cunning. But this cunningness is based on the truth. So the good God lies and the shifty snake tells the truth. When woman was created, it was foretold that man and woman shall stick together and leave their father. And in the Garden of Eden story, man listens to his partner, woman, over his father and eats from the forbidden tree. And so the prophecy of them leaving their home together is fulfilled. It was inevitable. Everything was foreshadowed. Which is what the biblical author of Genesis is trying to convey in many of his stories. His name is Baruch. Widely known as the scribe for the prophet Jeremiah, for whom he penned the book of Jeremiah, and Baruch and Jeremiah, and many in their community, they saw the writing on the wall, and they warned of an impending doom, which would inevitably include banishment. That's what the Babylonians did to all who opposed them. The Babylonians. But the Hebrew leaders would not listen to the commands of God, the God Yahweh, as spoken by Jeremiah in his prophecies. And because they did not listen, and they went against God's command, the prophesied doom and banishment came to be after Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 BCE. The Babylonians did that. Baruch turned all that into stories. He is the biblical author of Genesis. First he wrote the book of Jeremiah, and then he wrote the legends of Genesis. And even though Jeremiah looms large over most of these stories, it's the writer who gets the final word. And it's his legends that still wow us more than 2,500 years later. So let's place this story at a specific place and time. I think it was written around 580 BCE in Egypt. Here's why. Since Baruch and Jeremiah and their community immigrated to Egypt 
around 585 BCE. And since Baruch could only have had the time and resources to write Genesis after having settled in Egypt, let's say that the first two stories of Genesis were written around 580 BCE. 580 BCE is a nice round number. And it was around 580 BCE that other Hebrews from another Hebrew community wrote their own stories about the same events. But they didn't write them after settling in Egypt. They wrote them after they were taken captive to Babylonia. Ezekiel, for example, who wrote the first edition of Exodus. Ezekiel the priest. Baruch and Ezekiel both write their Genesis and Exodus stories at the same time, and they're both writing about the destruction of Jerusalem and the banishment from their homeland. Those are the big events of their lives and the lives of their people and their community, and that's all they write about. What happened before, during, and after the destruction of Jerusalem. Since Baruch and Ezekiel are different people who came from different backgrounds, and what happened to them after the destruction of Jerusalem was different as well, their narratives are completely different. The disaster affected their lives and the lives of their communities in a completely different way. Ezekiel was taken captive to Babylonia, whereas Baruch reluctantly immigrated to Egypt a couple of years later. They were reluctant immigrants. And so many of their stories in Genesis are about reluctant immigration. For Ezekiel, it wasn't a reluctant immigration. It was a captivity. And so his stories are about a captivity. In the case of the Garden of Eden story, Forced immigration is the conclusion. It is the punishment handed down by the god Yahweh. The god Yahweh puts man and woman on trial and decides their crime deserves banishment from their homeland. This creator is a father and a judge. In the previous episode, we discussed the reason behind having a creation story with a creator telling a blatant and provable lie. The truth is going to come out. So the sin in that creation story was God's lie. And in this story, in the Garden of Eden, the sin is that the people, meaning man and woman, do not follow the law. The first human sin is breaking the law. And it wasn't even a good law to begin with. But that's still the original sin, breaking the law. You had one law to follow, and you broke it. This is the quote-unquote original sin that is viewed today as breaking God's command. But I think it's more specific than that. You stand trial when you break the law, and then you sit in front of a judge 
a God judge in this case. So what kind of people write a story that highlights a proper trial inside a fantastical magical garden with the creator as a judge? Who imagines their creator as a judge? Everybody imagines their God is like them. Warrior people imagine their gods as warriors. Puritan priests imagine their gods as pure. And judges imagine their gods as judges. This story was written for a community led by judges. Here we introduce to the podcast the concept of judges, ancient judges. But these ancient judges have been with us this whole time. We just haven't referred to them as such. As judges, they are prone to compromise, realism, and facts. They cut deals, they broker deals. They settle disputes, they find common ground. We spent a lot of time with this community led by ancient judges, and we've met them at various points in Hebrew history. We just gave them different names. We call them pragmatists, doves, populists. These are all good adjectives to describe them, but at their essence, they are ancient judges. If we look at the Hebrew Bible from the bird's eye view, what we see is two communities constantly at odds, writing competing stories and competing narratives. This is the core conflict of Hebrew history. Judges versus priests. Judges versus priests. We've met the priests. They were taken captive to Babylonia. The judges remained or reluctantly immigrated to Egypt. The priests writing in captivity, they write about hero priests in captivity. These judges have many hero judges, i.e. in the book of judges. And they have hero kings who are the topmost judges. In some nomadic communities in the Middle East and Central Asia, you still have these sorts of judges. There is a beef. You come to see the judge, the mediator, the arbitrator. They rely on their integrity. But what the Garden of Eden story tells us is that they rely most of all on the law. Following the law is mandatory, whether you think the law is just or not. You must follow the law. You maintain order in the world by following the law. That's what a judge would tell you. If you ask a priest, they would tell you that you maintain order in the world 
by performing the rituals correctly to the correct God at the correct time of year. The political power of judges is derived from civilian law and from the masses. They are community leaders. Priests, on the other hand, they don't mingle with the masses, no. They keep themselves pure. They are the closest people to God. They get the political power from religious rules and regulations. You must attend their ceremonies and follow the guidelines to the T in every ritual and holiday. Judges and priests are diametrically opposed in terms of values, perspectives, and what they represent in the world and in society. And leading up to the disaster, the priests fought with the elite judgery for control of Judea and won. And the priestly victory meant that Judea entered into a senseless and pointless conflict with Babylonia. Something the realistic and pragmatic faction of the judges knew would lead to disaster and banishment. But the priests, they had their own fantasies. And they thought the rituals and ceremonies in the temple of Yahweh would keep them safe. They did not. So now we have an umbrella term for the Hebrew writers who are not priests. Judges. They are judges. And for them, according to the story of the Garden of Eden, disaster doesn't come because the judge lies. Hmm? Lies are bad. But what brings disaster is not following the law. That's the worst thing you can do. That's the original sin, not following the law. So the community that produced the story of the Garden of Eden was a community led by judges. So, we have enough context and we are ready to now go over the story of the Garden in Eden. והנחש היה ערום מכל חיית השדה אשר עשה יהו אלוהים. ויאמר אל האישה, אף כי אמר אלוהים, לא תאכלו מכל עץ הגן, ותאמר האישה אל הנחש, מפרי עץ הגן אוכל, ומפרי העץ אשר בתוך הגן, אמר אלוהים, לא תאכלו ממנו, ולא תיגעו בו, פן תמותון. And I'll also read the last sentence of the preceding creation story, because it sets up the Garden of Eden story. And man and woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was the most naked and crafty than any other animal of the field that the god Yahweh had made. He said to woman, Even though God said, you shall not eat 
of any tree in the garden. And the woman interrupts him. She doesn't let him finish the sentence. She comes in. Hmm? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the center of the garden. Neither you shall touch it, lest you die. The God Yahweh actually did not say that they would die just by touching it. And there are two trees in the center of the garden, two magical trees. The God Yahweh told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say anything about eating from the tree of life. That wasn't forbidden. So the woman's account is uh, <coughs> unreliable. Hmm? And here the snake starts throwing truth bombs. But the snake said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. In your translation, it does not say gods, because the Hebrew word Elohim means both God and gods. Elohim is the plural of El, of a God. Most of the time when it says Elohim, it means God. But in this context, it means you will be like gods. And we will see that play out again at the end of the story. There is no monotheism in Babylonian times. That does not exist. This is a polytheistic world. And the Hebrew God Yahweh is certainly not the strongest God of them all. His people just got destroyed, killed, exiled, and banished from their land. So let's keep going. Now the drama begins. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. Ta'ava in Hebrew. It's also used for the desire of the flesh. Passion. And it would make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They are no longer naked and naive. And then they heard the sound of the God Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and woman hid themselves from the presence of the God Yahweh among the trees of the garden. You can hide from this God. Let's continue in Hebrew. Vaikra Yahweh Elohim el ha'adam vayomer lo. Ayeka. 
ויאמר, את קולך שמעתי בגן, ואירע כי ערום אנוכי, ואכבה. או-או. ויאמר, מי הגיד לך כי ערום אתה? האם מן העץ אשר צוותך לבלתי אכול ממנו אכלת? But the character of the God, Yahweh, does not know it. Dramatic irony with the God, Yahweh. Fantastic. And then the man replies, I heard the sound of you in the garden. God makes a sound walking in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He does not lie, he tells the truth. He might not be naked, but he's still naive. He incriminates himself. And this makes father angry. In Hebrew first, Vayomer, Mi hegir lecha ki eromata? Hamina etz asher tsivitcha lebilti echol mimeno. Achalta? I love this part. So God is angry. And here is what he says. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Boom, boom, boom. Busted. This is a crime. A crime was committed. But man wasn't the only one busted here. Once man and woman ate from the forbidden tree, they did not eat. die. In fact, their eyes were opened for the first time. The God Yahweh was busted. He lied. The snake spoke the truth. But that does not interest the God Yahweh. And now the trial begins. He will deliver accusations. He will hear the testimonies of the suspects and then he will issue out detailed punishment. This is a trial presided by a God judge. It is written that we are created in God's image. Hmm? Well, in this case, when man and woman try to avoid responsibility or accountability for their actions, and when they shift blame elsewhere, I wonder, I wonder 
where they picked up this kind of behavior. Maybe they learned that from their father. Do we blame the children or do we blame the parents? Because the God Yahweh also refuses to take any responsibility for his actions and the consequences of his actions. He lied. That's one thing that he did wrong. And there is more, as man will now tell him. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Huh? You are also part of the problem. Huh? Huh? Huh, God? <laughs> you made this woman. The God Yahweh does not want to take any responsibility for that. The man says, I'm not to blame. He hints that the God Yahweh is to blame, and he points the finger at his accomplice. She did it. He breaks. Then the God Yahweh said to the woman, What have you done? Hmm? Confess. The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate it. And who made the snake? Lord Yahweh. Who made the snake cunning and crafty? The God Yahweh is a judge. He is not on trial. They are on trial. He ignores this hint again that he has anything to do with this. No, you broke the law. And this is now the climactic moment of the story. The punishment. The judge hands down the punishment. This is a very powerful part. Let me read it in Hebrew first. so let's hear how the trial ends. Hmm? The God Yahweh said to the snake, Because you have done this, hmm? because you have committed the crime, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You will desire your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the snake and the woman get punished just like that. But man, 
he has a different legal status. And before punishing him, the God Yahweh, like a proper judge, has to detail the crime for which he is punished. Due process by a God judge. And to man he said, because you have listened to your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to, curse will be the ground for you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, dry plants. And you shall eat the plants of the field. You will sweat to eat bread till you return to the ground out of which you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. This last phrase, me'afar bata ve'elafar tashuv, is absolutely iconic in Hebrew. I think that it is iconic in many other languages as well. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Or more concisely, from dust to dust. Baruch wrote it. So you probably noticed, obviously, that I read it pretty aggressively. To dust you shall return. I never noticed until recording for this episode, and I always read the story to myself out loud many, many times to get the music of it and uh, its rhythm. So until I did that in preparation for this episode, I never realized how aggressive it is. This is a death sentence. The story tells us that the God Yahweh might have lied about the forbidden fruit killing man and woman. But with this last sentence, to dust you shall return, he symbolically sentenced them to death. To dust you shall return means you will die. You will surely die. Man and woman did not have eternal life. So this here is a literary payoff to the setup in the creation story. Because in an existential sense, the God Yahweh tells man and woman, you have been forewarned that you will die, and here it is. To dust you shall return. So eating from the forbidden tree did kill them. Wow. Fantastic. Mind blown. The God Yahweh both lied and did not lie. He turned his lie into truth with this sentence. So many layers in this story. So let's get to the final conclusion of it. Man gives a name to his woman, Eve in English, Chava in Hebrew, maybe it was Chawa, or I think Chaya, living 
And then the God Yahweh prepares them clothings to hide their now private parts. And then he banishes them. And he lets us know why he decided on banishment on top of the symbolic death sentence. He realizes he cannot trust them. He cannot trust them to not keep breaking the law. And the God Yahweh is afraid that they will eat from the tree of life and live forever, like gods do. So this part starts with the God Yahweh's internal monologue that thankfully Baruch had access to. Because it will say here that God says something, says. But to whom exactly is he saying it? Not to man and woman, because he's talking about them in the third person. So he's either talking to himself, or he is conferring with other gods. Then the God Yahweh said, Now that man has become like one of us, like one of us, in knowing good and evil, so to prevent him from reaching out his hand to eat from the tree of life and live forever, the God Yahweh sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He banished man, and to the east of the Garden in Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword a spinning flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Applause. In order to make sure man does die, he is banished, and magic now protects the road to the tree of life. The cherubim are the Hebrew version of the Assyrian Lamassu giant statues, Lamassu the ones with a human head, an Assyrian-looking human head with a long beard. But the body is a winged bull. And two of these enormous statues were set at the entrance to important temples and the royal palace. They are very scary, intimidating, finely crafted, and they serve as protectors. So the Cherubim is a Hebrew miniature version of that, and they are now protecting the road to the Tree of Life. And two Cherubim also protected the entrance to the Jerusalem Temple, until the Babylonians destroyed it. Alas, the Cherubim were not able to protect the Temple. And Baruch knows that, and lived through it, so maybe that's why he adds extra magical protection to the Tree of Life. So there is also a spinning magical flaming sword for good measure. What a story. There's payoff. There's a God who lies and refuses to be held accountable for it. There are a dozen, at least, of all-time great expressions in Hebrew and a few in other languages. There's incredible world-building a trial, eternal punishments, like curses that are passed on from generation to generation until the end of time. 
and there are also many elements and themes from many other older tales. This is A Tour de Force by Baruch. His story has Sumerian, Babylonian and Greek elements in it. Let's start with the Sumerian aspects. Eden is in Sumer and the Sumerians had stories of a magical garden in the desert where the gods lived and where life was eternal. In Greek mythology, there's the garden of the Hesperides. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Hesperides. It's a magical garden with trees that produce magical golden apples that give you eternal life. And the goddess of the garden, Hera, places nymphs there in the garden. And Hera forbids the nymphs from eating from these eternal life-giving magical apples because she doesn't want them to be like gods. But she does not trust them not to eat these apples that give eternal life. So Hera protects the trees with powerful magical spells. Instead of Cherubim and the sword that spins forever, she places as protection a forever awake, hundred-headed dragon named Ladon. Then there's also the epic of Gilgamesh, with Gilgamesh looking to gain eternal life. He gets a hold of a plant that will accord him eternal life once he eats it. But guess what animal tricks him and steals this Gilgameshian tree of life? Hmm? A snake. A snake. And thanks to this magical, eternal life-giving plant, snakes can shed their skin. They are rejuvenated. Hmm? So what can we say? Baruch was again a very well-read man, and he fused countless stories into his Genesis stew. So the most important element in the story of the Garden of Eden is, for me, the trial. The trial. The God Yahweh is a judge. And the original sin is breaking the law. Man and woman didn't break a religious law. They didn't worship other gods. None of that. They broke the law. A secular civilian law. And the fact that the original sin is breaking the law is extremely revealing. Many creation stories with the concept of a wonderful past world that the humans once inhabited includes an original sin that ruins it for everybody. Original sins tell us what the community that birthed the story thinks is the worst thing you can do in the world. The original sin is the first bad thing someone does in the world. Hence, it's the worst. You don't write a marginal sin 
in your creation story as the original sin that gets you banished from paradise. Now, by the rules of the genre, the original sin must be the worst thing you can do. Other Mesopotamian cultures had different original sins that tell us much about what they thought was the worst thing you could do. In these Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian stories, the original sin is not breaking the law, but making too much noise. Making too much noise was the worst thing you could do. I'm guessing that in these first cities, the noise of the big city was way more noticeable and annoying than it is today, since these few Mesopotamian cities were the only noisy places in the world. So there, noise brought disaster. Okay. So it's pretty cool comparing original sins to see what each culture appreciated most and what they hated most. So overall, if you read this story, not like me, as a symbolic piece of literature that reveals what was going on in society and in the writer's mind, if you read it literally as the word of God, there are a few plot holes that jump out. Okay? So God curses man, woman, and snake and gives them eternal punishments to them and all their descendants. It's very specific to them and their descendants. For example, man is punished with hard labor to produce food from the ground, i.e. farming. The woman is not punished with laboring hard while farming. The snake doesn't farm, <laughs> doesn't affect the snake, doesn't affect horses or fish, right? They didn't do anything wrong in the garden. Hence, they keep doing what they're doing. And this is a punishment just for male humans. They will have to toil while farming for all eternity, supposedly. So first of all, that's already not true today with machinery. So if this is a punishment from God, then I guess he forgave us. But if we look at the world and how it is affected by the punishment to the female human, it does affect the horses, the cows, the snake, all the female creatures, really. They all give birth in pain. So that's not internally consistent if you try to look at it as the word of God. Sorry. So there's one more crucial theme in this story that we haven't explored fully and won't have time to get too much into in this episode. But we will unfortunately see it over and over again. So we'll get to it very soon. And I'm saying unfortunately because I'm talking about misogyny. Hatred of women. The woman in this story is unreliable. She caused the problem. She was duped. She set up man for a fall. And basically everything is her fault. But that's not Baruch's fault. No. It's the fault of Jeremiah. And I'm not only saying this because I love Baruch. And I will not listen to anything negative said about him. I will not stand for it. There's one more reason that I put all the blame on Jeremiah. If we read in the book of Jeremiah what Jeremiah thinks of women, we will see that it's exactly the specific kind of misogyny that we see in Genesis. 
So men have many creative and varied ways to hate women. And they're as numerous as there are stars in the sky. And Jeremiah's specific way to hate women is the incel way to hate women. Involuntary celibate. They want them and desire them and lust for them and cannot have them, so they despise them and ridicule them and belittle them. And you reject them because you feel they rejected you. That's incel 101. And Jeremiah is a literal incel. He does not have a wife or kids because Yahweh told him not to. Ah, sure, 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 sure. Yahweh told him not to meet up with women. Of course, of course. No, he's an incel. And he describes woman here, Eve, from the perspective of an incel. And this perspective, like all other things, Baruch and Jeremiah, will prove consistent in all their Genesis stories. Everything about Genesis will always be consistent. The next revisiting Genesis episode will come in 2024 on January 7. It will be about Cain and Abel. And astonishingly, it will be consistent with everything that we discussed. I think the first murder in the Bible might be inspired by the most dramatic murder in Hebrew history. So dramatic that it caused Baruch and his community to reluctantly immigrate to Egypt. There was a murder that made them fear for their lives. Mm. And the way they describe these two brothers, Cain and Abel, will bring back the topic of judges. They are judges. So that's coming on January 7. Next week, I'm posting another collaboration with my friend Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast, where we look at some of the connecting tissue between the Hebrew religion and Christianity. We're collaborating on a course that goes deep into one facet of Jesus, him being a servant of Yahweh, who is suffering, who is ridiculed and rejected, in spite of speaking in the name of Yahweh. That's the suffering servant aspect of Jesus. So we're collaborating on that. It will be a two-meeting course, interactive also, questions and answers. And we will go into all the Christian context and the Christian perspective of the suffering servant. And then we'll contrast that with the historical context and the Hebrew perspective of the suffering servant. So I'll tell you in a moment about our collaboration next week, which is about another facet of Jesus, but, but first a few words about the course. So we've spent a lot of time on the content, just making this course the best we can. And we put all the technical stuff on the back burner. We were less concerned about that. The result was that there was a little bit of confusion. I gave the wrong dates in the previous episode. I corrected it later in editing, but you might have heard that it was on two Sundays. It is not. It is on two Tuesdays in January. January 16 
and January 23. There's a reduced cost because this is a pilot course. We mean to keep going, but we wanted to relieve ourselves of pressure and just like have the first course at a really low cost compared to courses out there. It's just $49. 49 is a very auspicious number. So you can go to podcastofbiblicalproportions.com slash courses. And the way to sign up, there's a link at the bottom. You get to my Patreon page where you can buy one-time things. So you don't have to sign up to the tribe in order to attend the course. Okay, it's just a one-time purchase and you get the Zoom link on which we will hold uh, the two meetings. Next week with Gary, we'll touch on another aspect of Jesus. Political Jesus. Some of the stories about Jesus are political in nature, and when taken in bulk, it seems to me that they are identical to actual political events related to one specific person. And what happened to him in the political sense is very similar to what happened to Jesus in the political sense. A betrayal by an ally and friend after they had a last supper. So that's coming next week. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank the tribe or patreon.com slash biblical proportions. And I'll see you next week. I'm Bill Kidon. Bye, everybody. Thank you.